right. Welcome. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? Doing well? Are you uh, to that point of the semester where, like, the newness of school is worn off? Like, the, even the newness of, like, having football games and soccer games and all that stuff to go to is kind of worn off and you're kind of, like, in school mode? No? Hey, uh, let me just, this is not a part of the sermon, okay? This is free. You don't have to pay for this at all. Let me, be, let, me be, uh, let me encourage you to be careful what you tweet. Can I? Just, just be careful what you tweet. Tweet unto others as, own, as you would like to be tweeted to. Think before you tweet, all right? That's free. You don't have to pay for that at all. Hey, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 23. Um, I really wanted, um, I really wanted tonight to be easier to preach than it's going to be. Um, I wanted, uh, I tried, I went, uh, I, I tried to make tonight um, more exciting. I tried to figure out a way to make it more funny. I'm not a very funny guy, so I struggle. Um, I tried to, I tried to figure out a way to make it more creative. I tried to figure out a way to let, make you, um, to make it more positive. The problem is, I just don't have a lot to work with. Um, we're looking at a passage tonight called Matthew, Matthew chapter 23, and um, I even wrote a whole nother talk out of another portion of scripture, but I can't, uh, I can't be released from this one. Uh, as you know, we've been working through a sermon series called Not a Fan, and we've been talking about how to become a completely committed follower of Jesus, not just a fan of Jesus, not just somebody who kind of um, spectates and, and cheers along and is kind of loosely affiliated, but somebody who is a genuine follower of Jesus, and if, and if that's truly our desire, then we can't we can't duck the hard passages and we can't duck the hard truths. We can't not look at passages like Matthew chapter 23. Uh, the book of Matthew is bookended by two uh, great and historic sermons by, um, by Jesus. The first one is in Matthew chapter 5. It's the most famous of the two. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, the second and the last, or not the second sermon, but the last um, kind of the end of the bookend to the book of Matthew before um, kind of the, after this there's, this is the last major teaching section uh, in, in sermon form uh, before the crucifixion. <clears throat> and uh, it's called the parable of the seven woes. Uh, or your, your, the heading in your Bible may say different things, but it's the, the par- or, or the seven woes uh, to the scribes and to the Pharisees. And so the message that Jesus preached to these people was not a positive message. The positive thing about tonight is that we're not these people necessarily, and if we are, we don't have to be. Uh, so there's, a, there's, there's that. Uh, if this is your first time here, this environment is not typically this confrontational. Right? So I'm glad that you're here. I pray that you'll come back next week. Uh, I pray that you'll pay attention this week. But this environment is not typically this confrontational. Uh, but let me jump in uh, real quick. I want to pray for us before we, before we start, and then we'll jump into it, okay? Father in heaven, 
God, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for these students, and I thank you for your work. And I thank you for Jesus. 2,000 years ago, speaking these words to a group of very committed religious leaders who were following the wrong rules. And God, I pray tonight that the warnings and the condemnation that's found in these scriptures would not be true of us because our hearts would be changed by the truths of your word. And I pray, God, that the reality of who Jesus is would, would change our hearts. And God, I pray that tonight that we would leave this place different. And I pray that our church and our student ministry would not be the same because of students here tonight. God, tonight we pray and expect big things for your kingdom because of the words written in these pages. We ask all of these things, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. To be called a leader in the church is, um, when done, when performed correctly, is, is one of the highest honors that you, can, um, that you can receive in Scripture. To be a leader in the church, to be a pastor or an elder uh, or, or somebody who's, who's tasked with uh, overseeing the health and well-being of God's people, of shepherding God's people here on, on planet Earth uh, is one of the highest callings and, and, and comes with it one of the, some of the greatest rewards uh, in, in Scripture. Do we have those uh, ready, Cameron? Can we look at the first one? In Galatians chapter 4, talking about the Apostle Paul, um, he, uh, he describes, uh, and we not, may not have it, that's okay if we don't have it. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 14, um, it's described uh, pastors and elders and workers described as an angel of God. There he is. But received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In Philippians 2, 29, um, we're, told to, we're told to honor such men as, as who are teachers and who are elders and who are doing, who are leading correctly, all right, uh, in, in uh, Philippians 2, 29. In 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, we're encouraged to respect those that labor among you. He, he says, I encourage you to respect those um, that labor among you, uh, even, uh, even, there you go, <clears throat> with all honor uh, and, and respect them and, uh, who are over you uh, and who admonish you or who encourage you. Uh, 1 Timothy 5, 17 says, elders who rule, who, uh, who rule over, um, over the local church uh, are worthy of double honor, especially those who preach or who teach, who are tasked with um, teaching and, and expositing God's word to people. They're worthy of double honor. In Hebrews 13, 17, um, all believers uh, are encouraged to, to obey uh, spiritual authority. So you go, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So you're supposed to obey, uh, obey pastors, spiritual leaders, um, and that you'll give an account for, for um, your obedience or your disobedience. Um, they're held in, in very, very, very high positions. Uh, and you can clear those, you can clear those scriptures just for just one moment. Um, as, they, as they well should be. But when leaders fail, when leaders fail, in God's calling in their life, it, it, is, um, it is a travesty. 
And it happens too often, and it happened in the New Testament. Uh, in, and I want to look at what Jesus has to say to a group of leaders who failed. They failed um, their God-given responsibility. They failed the character test that should be true of, of people who were God's people. And it points for us, it illuminates for us some very severe, I think, warnings that we should all look at. Um, and so tonight, I'm speaking um, primarily to believers. I'm speaking primarily to those who identify themselves as Christians. Uh, and, and I know that there's a lot of people here in the room who um, knowingly uh, knowingly say, hey, I'm, I'm not a believer. I think there's something here for you tonight as well. And here's what I think that you, I think that, that you're going to see tonight the confirmation in these pages, in these words of Jesus, I think you're going to see the confirmation of some of your suspicions. And for some of you who maybe you've grown up in church and you've, you've entertained inwardly thoughts of the fact that, you know, like, I don't know if I've ever really embraced all this stuff. It's just kind of like my mom and dad take me here. This is kind of what I've always done on Wednesday nights. Or, you know, maybe you're just here because there's some guy or some girl or, or, or whatever. But you've had some sneaking suspicion uh, about, you've had a sneaking suspicion uh, about just the legitimacy of all of this and about Jesus and about the scriptures and about Christians, um, maybe because you've had a, a bad experience and maybe you just think, you've, you've not, you, you felt like you've never really seen a legitimate thing um, before, that you've seen, uh, you've seen a mirage or you've seen something that is not representative or accurate of, of Christianity. Uh, I think that tonight may confirm some of your suspicions. I say that with the caveat of warning that that all of us in the room, whether we profess to be Christians and we failed, or whether we don't profess to be Christians and we've been critical of Christianity, for all of us in the room, I think that we're all held accountable to these things. We're all held accountable to the same standard. And so I want us to look, and I'll set, this, set the scene real briefly. Jesus is talking to a group of 72 men. Um, and this group of men is known as the Sanhedrin. It's split between two different groups. Um, kind of like, uh, if you can think of like the Senate, has Republicans and it has Democrats, right? Uh, the Sanhedrin has Pharisees and it has Sadducees. And Sadducees are kind of the more liberal uh, group, uh, um, kind of sect of the group. They are, um, they've, they've inherited their position by, uh, by birthright. They're not elected. Um, well, they, they are elected, but one of the prerequisites is that they are, um, they, they've, they've got a genealogy that says they're supposed to be where they are. A limited understanding of British government says this is kind of like the House of Lords. You went to Britain one time, David, is that correct? Do you have any idea? Is it correct? Okay. Um, <clears throat> Catch what I did there. You went to Britain one time, like he should, like he should know, because he went. But he does, because he's a smart guy. Um, so that's the Sadducees. The Pharisees are people um, who are uh, more or less elected based on their knowledge base. Okay, they have very. Both of these groups of men have very, very deep understanding uh, and knowledge of what the scriptures say, the Old Testament scriptures say, and how they are to be applied in the life of of a Jew. Okay. Uh, and, and that's, that's the context in which Jesus is talking to. So the Pharisees uh, are, are elected based on knowledge base. The Sadducees are, based, uh, are, are here because of, of their granddaddy, all right? And, the, and he had a seat, and 
his dad had a seat, his dad had a seat, uh, and so on and so forth, okay? So uh, that, that's, the, that's the stage. Now, these guys, were sub, they had a job that they were supposed to be doing, and they failed miserably. And it's not just been them. It's been generations and generations and generations before them. But they failed in this respect. They were the ones tasked at this moment in time when Jesus comes on the scene and Jesus is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament points and culminates with the arrival of this one man. Okay? And there are um, there's prophecies, there's men, there's scriptures that point towards the fact that this is the Messiah. This is the one you've been waiting for. And all 72 of them that we know of, they all collectively miss it. In fact, they miss it so bad that while they're meeting and while they're here, they've already started in their hearts and they've already begun to plan to assassinate uh, and to take out Jesus because he posed such a threat to their little kingdom. More on that in just a second. So the first 12 verses of, of Matthew chapter 23 is basically Jesus railing against their character. He's basically outlining... Um, <clears throat> He's basically outlining everything um, they've done wrong. And then he begins in verse 13. Okay. He begins in 13, and he lays out seven, uh, seven woes, W-O-E. Uh, and, and, he, and they're basically, he's not, he's not saying if this continues to happen. He's saying this is what is going to happen. He's not saying be careful. He's saying you're guilty of these things, and this is what's going to happen. Um, and they're, they're kind of frightening because you would think that it would just, these behaviors and things that, that they're, they're really guilty of, you'd think that they'd be guilty just to, that it just applied to them. But the truth is it can, it can apply to all of us, and, and you and me included. So look at this, look for verse 13, it says this. It says, <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. It's a favorite word of, of people who are somewhat skeptical of Christianity. If, you're, if you've ever been disenfranchised with uh, Christianity, you might have used this word, hypocrites. Just a real quick pop quiz, kind of fun fact. Anybody know where hypocrite, where that word comes from? Yeah, where who said that? Yeah, Lydia, that's right. And you know what, can you flesh that out for us? What's that mean? Like, where, like what a hypocrite is in, in the acting world? No, we've, extend, we've, we've reached the depth of your knowledge of the word. That's okay. Hey, look, you know more than everybody else, all right? So uh, a, a hypocrite is basically, um, it's a Greek word, and it, it, it kind of came to resemble um, actors who would play multiple characters in a play. One actor who would play multiple characters in a play using a mask. Sound familiar? Right, does that make sense? Okay, so it's somebody who, who's used to um, taking on m multiple personalities, multiple um, identities, and, and portraying to the audience or to the watching world um, contradictory characters and, and people, um, value systems, all of that. And so he's, he's labeling them as such. It's not a compliment, okay? He's not saying you're so good at being a chameleon. He's saying you hypocrites uh, because they knew they knew the scriptures, uh, and they missed them b badly, terribly. For you shut the kingdom. And so I'm going to give you seven um, kind of things, okay? Seven kind of things that they're 
that they are um, charged against, and I think that we can, at some, time, some point in time, we can be guilty of all of them. The first one is excluding others from the kingdom. Look at verse 13. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. The kingdom of heaven is supposed to be an open door. And the job and role of Christians is to keep the door open and to invite as many people uh, in to follow after Jesus, okay? In fact, it's to do more. It's to live a life, uh, to live a life in a way that, that people, the watching world, sees the believer and says, whatever it is that they've got, whatever it is that distinguishes them, I want it. And your life is supposed to be a billboard for the kingdom. It, it is supposed to be a walking advertisement to invite people to follow Jesus, to be followers of Jesus. But what Jesus is, is, is accusing them of is complete opposite, of shutting the kingdom of heaven, shutting the doors of the kingdom of heaven for people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. And so um, these, these questions, these kind of self-examination questions are pretty, uh, they're pretty self-evident, okay? Are you guilty of shutting the door to the kingdom in people's faces. If you think in um, John chapter 9, where Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, and these same men, um, they got mad and frustrated because he healed on the Sabbath. He worked, and in their opinion, he worked on the Sabbath and thus broke one of the, one of the Ten Commandments, that thou shalt till keep the, the Sabbath day holy, and you should rest, and they, they didn't think he should have healed. They completely missed the point that he healed a man. People matter. People matter. The people that you and I rub shoulders with and that we do life with and that we, we go to school and we work and we take classes and we live with in our own homes, people matter to God. The kingdom's all about people. You can't get the kingdom of God. You can't follow Jesus if you can't understand that Jesus loved people. People matter. Is your life an open door or is it a closed door? Are you helping people come into the kingdom or are you keeping people out? Number two, he accused them of subverting um, genuine faith. Subverting genuine faith. Okay, uh, look at verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're going to see a pattern here, okay? All right? He's going after him, dude. I mean, I'm telling you, he is just like, he's not, um, he's probably anger, but he's not unrighteous in his anger. He's, but he is um, straight going after him. 15, uh, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. There's no way to make that funny, all right? There's no way to make that, like, more appealing to you. Here's what he's saying. <clears throat> uh, just, like, uh, just like in any religion, um, but especially in Judaism, uh, these men, part of their responsibilities, they were tasked um, with going out and, and, and making true the promises of Abraham, right? That, that, your, uh, the, that the, the influence of the one true living God would extend to all families and all people, uh, and, and that was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. So what they would, they would go out, and they would, just like Mormons, just like Jehovah's Witnesses, just like Christians are supposed to do, uh, and they would share basically their faith with other people. And he's saying, you'll go so far as to get on boats and travel across lakes and seas, and you'll go to other people in different languages, and you go out, but you're subverting genuine faith. You're working against genuine faith because the, the, the 
faith that you're drawing them to is a, is a religion based on works and on rules and not based on grace and not based on faith. So they would go out in these boats and they would go out in these teams and they would bring people in and they would they'd bring people into Judaism, they'd bring people into the temple and they would teach them the Old Testament scriptures and then they would begin to pile on their own opinions and their own beliefs and things that weren't in the scriptures and they would begin to make them and require them to do other things, to, to, to think and believe and to do other things that were not required in the scriptures. And he's saying that you are making them, he said, not only are you giving them bad religion, you're, you're, you're subverting the one true living God's faith. And you're making them twice as much a child of hell um, as yourself. Um, I want to uh, caution you, okay? Um, every single one of you is a theologian. Every single one of you, um, when you make a statement about God, when you make a statement about truth, when you make a statement about reality, when you make a statement, when you give advice to somebody about a problem, you are a theologian. You are somebody who is making statements about the truth and the reality of God, and you're applying it to the human condition. That's what a theologian does. A theologian is somebody who takes the word of God, and they take what Jesus says, and they take what the word of God says, and they apply the truths of God to the realities of the human condition. So when you give your friend advice about their boyfriend or their girlfriend or this relationship or what to do about an ethical issue, or when you um, talk about, uh, you know, when you talk about 9-11 in history class, when, like when you make any statement at all, you are making statements as a theologian. And you may say, well, I don't use scripture and I don't talk about God, so that doesn't make any sense. No, that's the point. You are being a theologian and you're not applying the word of God. You're not replying the reality of Jesus. You're not replying, this is a terrible place for tambourine. You're not applying, um, you're not applying the truths of scripture. You're not, you're not applying it to the human condition. We don't live in a vacuum. We live in a world which God has intervened and God has spoken. And so when you make, declare, when you make statements about truth and about reality and about the, the, the sinfulness of man, even though you don't use those terms, that's what you're talking about. And so you're either helping to perpetuate genuine faith or you're subverting it. You're working against it. See, until today, I, didn't, I probably didn't realize how much I had in common with these guys. This caused me to question, man, does every piece of counsel that I give, does every time I try to speak into a student's life, is it, is it completely saturated with the word of God? Does it really call into account the, the, the reality that all of us, apart from Christ, are completely hopeless? And I've been guilty this week of advising, a, of, of counseling a student. And, and you know what? I missed the first step. I missed the fact that I don't, I had to go back to them. I don't really know that they're a believer. And, and the truth of the matter is, no matter what, like we, we maybe even be able to outwardly fix a problem, but we're going to get to that in just a second. Just because you outwardly fix a problem doesn't mean that you've solved the problem. Because the problem is not on the outside, it's on the inside. It's in our, it's in our heart. Number three, 
He warns them against perverting, he judges them against perverting truth. Verse 23. Um, I'm sorry, I skipped it. So, I'm sorry, verse 16. What is 16 through 23? Woe to you, blind guides. Right? They're supposed to be leading the way. They're supposed to be shepherding. They're supposed to be showing people how to go. He's calling them completely blind. He says, you don't know where you're going. You have no idea what you're doing. You're completely incompetent. Would you follow a blind guide? Aside from Stephen Morgan, because that guy's crazy. I think he may actually be able to see, because he just does some incredible things. But, like, <clears throat> aside from uh, somebody like that, would you follow a blind guide? Of course you wouldn't. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blindfold. Okay, let me set the stage. They're basically saying, okay, um, they kind of created two different ways for you to verify that you're, that you're telling the truth. All right, so, um, uh, so kind of like when you get home uh, and maybe it's 1130 and mom goes, hey, you know, my dad, how is the movie? Um, and, and you say, oh, it was good. And they say, they start kind of questioning whether you were really at the movie. And you say, mom, I promise you I was at the movie. I promise. Right. Well, they kind of created two kind of separate things. Right? Some people say, like, I swear on the Bible. Let me encourage you not to do that. I'll tell you about it here in just a second. But they kind of created two different conditions in which you could um, tell the truth. One, uh, and, and it's, it's like, I know it sounds ridiculous, um, and it was, and that's what Jesus is getting ready to say. He's going to just go completely after him. All right? Uh, but they basically kind of created two different kind of conditions. And one, you didn't really have to tell the truth. You kind of could. You could kind of fudge it a little bit. The other one, you really kind of needed to because it was... It was closer. And so he's talking about um, the gold uh, by the temple or the gold of the temple. And he's going to talk about that analogy in just a second. So I think it's kind of self-explanatory. I don't want to confuse you. Um, he says, you blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men. For which is greater, the gift of the altar that make the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. What he's saying is the same thing he said in Matthew chapter 5. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. Don't create degrees of truth. Don't create matter. Don't don't create um, different categories in your life to which you think it's imperative to tell the truth, and which it's it's possible that you could kind of you know, I, this this is generally true, or this is, I intend for this to be true, so I'm just going to say it anyways, or I'm just going to don't don't create segments and subcategories of people in your life that you'll tell the truth with and that you're honest with and people in, in your life that under no circumstances whatsoever can you really tell how you're actually feeling. Let your yes be yes and let your no be no. We're, um, we're looking to bring some, some more people on our staff, on our student ministry staff and on our team. And so I've been interviewing a lot of, of um, re some really sharp young guys recently. And... Um, and one of the questions that you have to answer, um, we put a whole litany of questions, but some of the, one of the, several of the questions that we answered gets kind of personal because we got to make sure that we're hiring guys and, and, and young gals that um, they're going to do a good job for us. And so with the guys, um, <clears throat> I ask them a couple questions. I, I usually ask them to tell me about their quiet time yesterday or today. If it's later in the day, I ask them, hey, tell me about your quiet time this morning or, or last night. 
um, and I want to know what they're what they're reading. If they're having a, a legitimate quiet time, they're spending time alone with the Lord, and if they're reading Scripture and praying and memorizing Scripture and doing all those things that we um, encourage you to do. I ask if the guys, I ask them when the last time they looked at internet, internet pornography was. I used to ask, have you ever looked at porn? Um, and it's become so pervasive and such a huge problem that I ask them, um, not to excuse it, fellas, because it's not, but I ask them when was the last time. And we want to see a significant period of time. And I'm talking about like years, okay, for, for these guys. I'm talking about years or several, several months um, where they've demonstrated they've got a, they've got a handle and control um, on that. I ask them about their use of alcohol. I ask them, when was the last time that you used alcohol or, um, <clears throat> you know, how, what, what's, your, what's your position on alcohol? And um, So I ask them some very personal, very real questions. And so I spoke with three guys this week. Um, two guys I know told me the truth, and one guy I know he lied to me. Okay? I just know. I've been doing this long enough. I've been asking these questions to enough guys. I know that he lied to me. I just know it. I know it in my heart. There's two other guys on the table. They know it. The minute we walked out of the room, I just said, hey, what do you think about this answer to this question? He lied. He's off, man. He's done. Okay, he's done. He told me an answer that he thought I wanted to hear. He's done. He's done. I can't trust him. Let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Just resolve to tell the truth all the time, no matter what. No matter what. Let your yes be yes, let your no be no. <clears throat> so they were perverting the truth. Um, they were inverting divine divine priorities. Look at verse 24. They were getting things out of order. To invert means to get things, something out of order, to flip on its side. Verse 20, uh, I'm sorry, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites. Um, for you tithe mint and dill, which is a seed. It's a very, very small seed. Okay, You tithe mint and dill and cumin and have a, and neglected um, the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat. What happened is uh, flies would come in like, in like wine or drinks or things, and they would, um, as they would go to glass, to pour glass, they would run it like a filter um, to take out all the, the small little impurities. He says, you, um, <clears throat> uh, you blind, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Okay. He's saying, He's saying, so like, let's say you'd have some crops or you'd make, you'd make some money uh, and, and you were supposed to tithe or you'd be taxed on, on everything that you made, right? And he's saying, so, so some people would sell like, even like little seeds, little mint. You're, you're focusing on the, just to get your 10% of what you've made on the smallest little things, which you're supposed to do, he's saying, you're supposed to do, but you're missing the big things, right? He's saying you're missing justice, and mercy, and, fr- and faithless. You're missing all the hard issues. You're following rules, and you don't have a relationship, right? You're following rules. You're establishing a religion based on rules, not on relationship. You're inverting divine um, priorities. Let me ask you this question, okay? Ask you this question. When was the last time you did a legitimate kind of heart check on, let's just take these three things. There's others that we could look at, but he mentions these. Let's just take these three things. When was the last time you defended those who couldn't defend themselves? When was the last time you defended those who couldn't defend themselves? When was the last time you stood up for what was right no matter what the cost? 
When was the last time that you forgave unconditionally? Where you, where you extended mercy to someone? Where you didn't blast them on Twitter when you could have? When was the last time you, you, you saw that transgression and you said, Man, I'm just not going to. I'm not going to mess with that. Are you faithful? Are you doing the little things right, the things that nobody else sees? Are you doing those things right? Um, look at verse 25. Or 5. <clears throat> Are you indulging in yourself or extorting God's people? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. I think one of the biggest, um, <clears throat> one of the biggest tragedies in um, evangelic in the church today is uh, is guys who who find their way on TV, and our pastor's on TV, and I'm not talking about our pastor. Our pastor does a great job. He preaches from the Bible, um, and he, he doesn't make anything off of, off of the messages. We never ask for money um, through TV. It's a ministry. We, we bless people in the Chattanooga, Cleveland area with it. Um, there are guys who make millions of dollars a year. Well, their ministries make millions of dollars a year. They make millions of dollars a year um, by going on TV and on the Internet um, and asking people to give money to their ministry so that they can, um, <laughs> they can send their TV broadcast to more people to ask more people to send money to send more people, um, and that's how it goes. And they make millions of dollars. And they're indulging themselves off of the work of the ministry. But they didn't start there. Right? Like, I don't think... I, I don't think I, any of you are in danger of becoming TV evangelists that just siphon off hundreds of millions of dollars from unsuspecting people watching cable at 2 a.m. Like, none of you are in danger of doing that, like, tomorrow, right? But that's not where that starts. You know where it starts? Here's where it starts. It starts by using people for your own benefit. That's where it starts. It starts by seeing people as a means to an end and not the end in and of itself. You become a televangelist by using people in the ninth grade to get what you want. You can't figure out how to get it on yourself, how, how to do it yourself, but you can figure out how to scheme somebody else into it's a really bad place for a tambourine. All right, <clears throat> you can't figure out a you can't figure out how to get something yourself, so you figure out how to use somebody else to get what you want. That's how that begins. And the principle is the same, that you use others, you use others. And what Jesus is saying is, man, um, the, uh, look at the inside of the cup. He's talking about your heart issue. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. As people would make pilgrimages to holy places for 
from Passover to Jerusalem and to other places. Um, in the spring, after the rains would come, they would, um, they would clean and they would wash uh, and basically bleach all of the uh, tombstones and graveyards in different places so people wouldn't accidentally touch them and become ceremonial, ceremoniously unclean. Because if you, accidentally, if you touched a, a tomb or a, a grave marker, you were ceremoniously unclean for seven days and you'd miss the Passover feast. And so they would wash them as warning places not to go. Why? Because they were, they encompassed the dead remains and the rotting remains of human flesh. And he's accusing them of being these whitewashed tombstones that look great on the outside. They follow all the rules. They do all the right things. But on the inside, they're rotting, and they're broken, and they're dangerous. He says, what do you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Remember, they're, they're, most of them are from the same lineage of guys who had held these positions that had persecuted um, and even killed some of the great prophets of old because they didn't agree with their message. And they're saying, if we would have been in that time, we would have done something different. They're saying, if we would have been there, we would have done something different. And Jesus um, has finally lost it. And he says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. They just had to scare these guys half the day. He says, fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of you whom you will kill and crucify, talking about himself, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of, of Berechiah, um, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Again, pretty somber words, right? As they were there defending their innocence and saying um, outwardly, man, so thankful we're not like our fathers. They were at that very same time plotting to kill um, Jesus. And Jesus knew it. And he knew what was going to happen. And he knew all of the men in the room were going to be responsible. Um, and here's why our fate is different than theirs. Okay? Here's why our fate is different than theirs. Jesus was in the room. He was in the room with his murderers. And he willingly went to that cross to pay for their sin and for yours and for mine. Can you imagine how difficult it must have been? I mean, he could have, if he wanted to right then, he could have judged them, sentenced them, killed everybody in the room, and he would have been completely justified, completely righteous, and banished them to hell. But you know what he did? He went to the cross. He went to the cross, and he paid the penalty for their sin and then he stayed in that tomb for three days, bearing all the shame, all the guilt, all the weight of 
of their sin and their rebellion and their crucifixion, all of their hate, all of their anger, and he bore it all, and then three days later, he rose from the dead. And he defeated sin, and he defeated death, and he made it possible for these men filled with hate, filled with anger, filled with rage, filled with disbelief, to inherit the kingdom of God. That is the kind of love, that is the kind of sacrifice, that is the kind of intimacy with the Father that being a follower of Jesus commands. To be in a room surrounded by your enemies, willingly, willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel and for the hope of redemption. Father in heaven, God, I thank you for these words from Jesus to these men. And I thank you, God, for the example that it, for the example that it shows us of how much Jesus truly loves each one of us. God, some of us here tonight have been convicted by these words. Because we've lived a life, and we've fallen into a pattern of behavior that's made our Christianity about external rules and how we look and how we act and how we behave, and not about how we treat others. And not about how we how we share your love and your grace with others. And so God, tonight, I pray that we would, for the believers in this room, I pray that we would recenter our lives around the gospel. God, I pray that we would make, if need be, I pray we would make amends with those whom we have disagreement God, I pray that um, for those in the room tonight that are skeptical, God, they would see uh, that we as Christians, we realize that we don't oftentimes live up to what we're supposed to do and that we know that. But there are those in this room tonight who desire to follow after Jesus. And we know that Jesus deserves better, and we know that the watching world deserves better. But God, I pray that for those in the room tonight who's, who remain skeptical of Christianity, that they would look not towards us, ultimately, that they would look towards the one in whom we follow. That they'd cast themselves on the mercy and the grace of of Jesus, who exemplified all of these things and more, and who teaches us to do the same. I pray, God, that you'd change us tonight, and you'd change our hearts. In Jesus' name.